It's my pleasure today, after Dan surprised me with an introduction like that, to uh, introduce to you Josh McDowell. Um, since beginning his ministry in 1961, Josh has, has given more than 23,000 talks to over 10 million young people in 115 countries. Uh, we just went through his most recent itinerary, and he has spanned the globe just in the last few months. He's the author or co-author of 108 books selling over 49 million copies uh, worldwide, including More Than a Carpenter, which alone has sold over 15 million copies. Uh, It's been translated into 85 languages. He also wrote uh, the new, new evidence that demands a verdict, which was recognized by World Magazine as one of the century's top 40 books. At a dinner a few weeks ago, Josh made the comment that he's a so-so writer, but a great researcher. Um, I think the numbers show that he's a pretty good writer, and he's had a dramatic impact on the youth of the world. Josh is currently traveling the United States with a message of truth in the context of relationships. This message is designed to help adults and young people take their faith and scriptural beliefs to form solid convictions that will stand firm in the face of constant worldly attacks. Josh will tell you that his family does not come before his ministry. His family is his ministry. He and his wife, Dottie, have been married for 37 years, and they have four children and two grandchildren. So please join me in welcoming Josh McDowell. Good morning. I'm, I'm so glad that Dan mentioned about shaking hands and everything else. I just want to let you know I, I do live in Mexico, and I just came from there. And, and I, feel, I feel as good as a pig, let me tell you. <laughs> but uh, I do. As soon as people find out they're talking with me, they take two steps backwards. And I'm trying to hug and give them a kiss on the cheek. <laughs> And boy, last night with Peter Heisinger, man, he stepped four steps back and I grabbed him and gave him a big kiss. So if he comes down sick, you can blame me, okay? This morning, wow, what a privilege to be here with the partners in ministry. These people are my heroes in life. How I wanted, I just wanted to live in Latin America and camp. I've been on crusade staff 49 years and they just said, no, you've got to live in the United States because of what you do all over the world. But uh, it is true, um, in the bulletin it says, into all the world. We are global, folks. We are. Especially with young people, we are global. We must think globally. When we talk about truth, we must think of the global implications of it. And in the global implications of truth, and truth in missions... One of the biggest phrases I get all over the world, not just the United States. I just came back from Africa a couple weeks before then in Poland and all. And the number one comment I get, now you don't get it from senior pastors or deacons and elders or older folks. You get it from those who work with young people all over the world. And it it goes something like this. Well, Josh, what do I do about my kids? I say, what do you mean? Well, the kids in my youth group, the born-again kids in my church, the way they act, the way they behave is so little different from the non-believer, unborn-again person around the church. I wish they'd say, look, I'm a researcher, and you're all wrong. Research. I can't do that because they're right, and it breaks my heart. It breaks my heart. 
15 to 20 years ago in lying, cheating, stealing, and violence. The difference between an evangelical born-again Christian young person and a secular kid around the church is anywhere from 12 to 18 percentage points difference. And that's significant. It really is. Do you know what the last seven studies have showed? There's no difference. Lying, cheating, stealing, and violence. No different from evangelical fundamental born-again Christian kids and secular kids around the church in almost every single culture of the world. And it breaks my heart. When somebody brings that up to me, we talk about it like they just did in Africa and Tanzania. I take them to this diagram. This diagram has helped me more in raising my own four kids and in writing talks for young people and doing movies and television, radio, writing books, whatever. This diagram next to the Bible has been the greatest help of my life. At the top of the diagram, it's that part of the iceberg like that you see above uh, the waterline. Everything else is massive underneath. Well, what you see above the waterline here is one's behavior. That's what you see. Now, underneath the waterline, the massive part, what drives our behavior? It's your values, folks. Your values drive your behavior. Now, what forms your values? It's your beliefs. Or, I like to use the term, it's your world view. I say, what do you mean by world view? Well, it's a little difficult to understand. A world view is how you view the world. It's uh, how you look at the world. Do you look at it through a biblical perspective, a secular perspective, a new age perspective? What? Our beliefs form our values. It drives our behavior. Now, what I studied for 15 years, and I couldn't answer. What encourages a young person to believe? What would cause your own children, your grandkids, kids of this church, the young people that the missionaries work with and everything, what would cause them to want to know your Savior, love your scriptures, live out your values? About 10 years ago, the light went on. It's relationships, folks, whether you like it or not. It is relationships that engenders beliefs that forms our values that drives our behavior. Now, the problem that we're facing globally is on the belief level. Number two would be on the relationship level, but on the belief level. Here's a principle, folks, I've used in 49 years of ministry. Look, man, when I went into ministry, the Dead Sea was only sick. It's been so long. And it's on the belief level. You see, if on the belief level between Christian and non-Christian kids, the beliefs are not much difference, then there'll be less difference on the behavior level. The behavior level is that, a, is that where the truth is observed in one's behavior. That's where you see truth observed on the behavior level. But here's the problem. There's very little difference on the belief level of young people all over the world, no matter what their background, Christians, whatever. Let me show you what I mean just in the area of truth. Is there truth apart from yourself? Is there objective truth that is true whether you believe it or not? Is there anything that is true for all people in all times and all places? I call it universal truth. When Jesus said, I am the truth, he didn't mean it just for the Jews before him. He meant it for all people in all places at all times. When it comes to truth, in 1991, in the United States, and I'll show the implications around the world globally, in 1991 of evangelical fundamental born-again church young people, 52% said there is no truth. Did you get that, folks? 52% said there is no truth apart from myself. In 1994, that jumped to 62%. In 1999, it escalated to 78%. Said there is no truth apart from myself. 
You know what it is now? A staggering 91% of evangelical, fundamental, born-again Christian kids will say there's any truth apart from myself. Another study showed that of all young people in America, all teenagers, only 6% will say there's any truth apart from myself. I bet a lot of you adults never knew that, did you? Whole different culture. Of non-believing young people, 4% will say there's any truth. Of believing young people, 9%. In other words, identical to the other study. 91% says there is no truth. In this study, 9% of believing young people say there is truth. And pastors and others will say to me, and denominational leaders, Oh, Josh, you missed the point. This is just an aberration in research. This is just a spike. This is not reality. I just want to say, look, I might be dumb, but I'm not stupid. I know enough to check that out. This is not an aberration, folks. Let me show you what I mean. You take the basic core values of the Christian faith, the deity of Christ, the reliability of the Bible, the resurrection and truth and faith in Christ. You take those basic core values. The generation of born-again young people that in 1945 65% believed in those five core values. The next generation with the same controls fell to 35%. The next generation fell to 15%. The next generation right now, you know what it is? Under 4%. Folks, this research is not an aberration. They said, well, thank God it's not true around the world. Folks, it's true all over the world. If you don't believe me, you just take and travel with me and do the research that we do. Let me show you what I mean. We spent over $200,000. Man, that's a lot of money. And we did it to study young people in other cultures. Why? Nobody else does it. We wanted to find out what do they truly believe? What is their truth system? And I can stand here and tell you, we could not find one culture in the world where young people's position on truth and knowledge was any more than five to seven years behind the United States. And it's hard for me to believe. If I knew a culture where it was more than that, I would go and camp out there and study it to see why. Let me show you what I mean and what the research found. In China, of the evangelical fundamental born-again Christian kids, 77% will say there is no truth. In Poland, 49%. United Kingdom, over 80% will say there is no truth. In Mexico, 73%. It's about 73 to 78% through all Latin America. Of Romania, 70%. The United States, 91%. You know how that's lived out? 51% of evangelical fundamental born-again Christian kids all over the world say Jesus Christ was never raised from the dead. 39% will say the Bible is not the Word of God. It's a Word of God. 63% will say Jesus Christ is not the Son of God. He's a Son of God. And that is consistent all over the world. You say, how can that be consistent? Well, if you say there is no truth, then you can't state that He is the Son of God. You can only state He is a Son of God. And they're living out consistently with their beliefs on truth. The problem we are facing is on the truth level all over the world. In John 18, it says that we are to bear witness of the truth. If ever we needed that in the homes right in the United States before our children and in every culture in the world, it is now to live the way in which we 
bear the reality of truth in our lives, that our behavior is observable truth being lived out. In 1 Thessalonians 1, 5, Paul said, By the way we lived among you, mom, dad, missionary, pastor, layperson, by the way we lived among you was further proof, further proof of what? Of the truth of our message. The way we even behave says to a young person whether your message is true or not. In 2 Thessalonians 2, 8, Paul said, while we were among you, we not only imparted the truth. He say, see, preach the truth. They said, not only imparted the truth, but we imparted our very lives. One of the greatest needs in the world is the bottom two levels of that pyramid. Truth in the context of relationships, or our kids will walk away. In Romans 10.2, Paul said they have a form of godliness. They have a zeal for God, but without knowledge. Or we have that in the world today. I thank God this is one church that doesn't have that. But in Latin America and Chile and other places, I couldn't believe it. I found what was referred to as evangelical church and everything. And these pastors preach that epistles are the wives of the apostles. And that's no joke. They have a zeal for God. Wow! But not according to knowledge. Most of our young people have a zeal for God, but it is not according to knowledge. And all these pastors and everyone else quote these, the research, Dan says, look, the research shows 65% of American young people say their religious spiritual values are very important to them in their life. Everybody says, that's wonderful. Get real. In an open-ended question, which is even better research, when straight across the board, Christian young people are asked, what are the greatest values in your life? Almost never is there walk with God, spirituality, anything in the first three or four. It's being happy, a good life, having a good job, getting a good education. When you have a closed indication, they'll say, oh, my religious values. When you have an open-ended question, they never mention it. In other words, the religious values are not reality to them. It's happiness, a good life, good job, education, a happy family. We are struggling. We have a battle in the area of truth. Every missionary is facing that in every culture of the world. You look at Africa. I've been there twice in just the last number of months, doing university tours and all. And in Africa... Everybody talks about the great revivals and everything else, folks, will wake up. Our greatest problem in Africa in missions over the years is we won the heart of the African, but we never won their mind. And now Islam is winning their mind. It's not too late. We still have an opportunity, but, but let me tell you, we better get back to the basic truths of Christianity right down into missions. Yes, it's important to love people. Thank God. It's important to let people know we love them and meet their physical needs. I started one of the largest humanitarian organizations in the world. That's key. But if they don't see truth within that, we have failed. Because with young people all over the world, if they don't see it, they will not believe it. And I don't blame them. You walk into so many villages in Africa, starting Malawi, wherever, 
And if you're a Christian evangelist or a Christian missionary, they refer to you as a Christian evangelist. You walk in as a Muslim evangelist, you know what they call you? A Muslim scholar. That right there, Dan, indicates the the crises we have. It's a crisis of truth. And what breaks my heart is we have the truth. It is true. By the way we walk and the the way we talk, if we don't make truth reality starting right on our own homes at every missionary we ever send out, it doesn't matter then how much you pray. You can have all the national days of prayer you want and we will fail. We can have all the church growth we want, everything else, and we will fail. We can fill our churches, the huge churches, and we have the form of godliness that lack the power therein. We must live and teach truth now in missions more than ever before because among young people, there's hardly any difference all over the world. Most of my work and most of my life is spent in the Muslim world. Most people don't know that. Because I have to be so careful. Now, you be careful how you even handle this. We're following up. I mean, this just blows my mind. Over 258,000 Muslims have come to Christ in just the last 36 months. It's staggering. I think some of the most open people groups in the world are Muslims, especially 15 to 28 years of age, if they're approached right. If they see it, they will believe it. Boy, is that true among Muslims. But... Why so many Muslims come to Christ? And they are, not just with us. I, Dan, I'm convinced some of the greatest missionary organizations of people I've ever met are working in the Muslim world, and they're the best-kept secret. Why? They can't be known. They can't be known. The governments know what we're doing, but oh, they don't know the extent of it. Not even close. If they did, we would be closed down, and many other groups would be. And people say to me, well, why are they so open? Why are you seeing what has never been seen before in history? There's a number of reasons for it. One, definitely is prayer. God called a, called a movement of prayer with no one organized or anything else. Throughout the Muslim world, it's uncanny. Second, I truly believe we are reaping the results of years of faithful missionaries out there walking and talking the truth in the Muslim world, and now God is giving the harvest and I wish many of them who many now have passed away and gone to be with the Lord, they could see the fruit. It used to be if a missionary spent an entire lifetime among the Muslim people, if he saw one come to Christ, he was overwhelmingly successful. Now hundreds of thousands are coming to Christ. And one of the biggest reasons I tell people, <laughs> this might affect your theology a little bit, but it's visions and dreams. Folks, it's visions and dreams. If you don't believe me, you travel with me one week. I started to research out why. And everywhere I went, I hardly ever meet a Muslim came to Christ that didn't have a vision or a dream about Christ. Uncanny. And in it, as I researched it out, almost every dream or vision is the same, no matter what culture, language, or what. No connection between them. Christ is standing there with a white robe on, And he says, almost always, the person having that dream or that vision repeats this, that Christ said one of two things, either, why are you resisting the truth? Or, they hear him say, seek the truth. You know what the response is? This is why I say one of the last people groups 
who's truly seeking truth are Muslims between 15 and 28 years of age. Almost straight across the response is, what is truth or show me the truth? If anything keeps me going night and day, it's one of the biggest phrases we get. We'll get about 18,000 letters today. Just today, requesting that little booklet, Morna Carpenter, which is bringing so many of them to Christ, thousands. And we get about 18,000 letters a day, three, 31 days a month, even February. <laughs> and if there's any one word that comes out, it's truth. It's truth and love. But any one phrase is probably capped with this if you read them all. Why haven't you been keeping this truth from us for so long? I'll tell you, folks, if anything keeps me going night and day. The last four years, I've been on the road 300 days a year. I've been home two days in the last eight weeks, and my wife still loves me. She's more called to ministry than I am. That's unbelievable. It really is. My wife is more called to what we do than I do. And she wouldn't let me let my guard down. But what keeps us going night and day is, why have you kept this truth from us for so long? Another phrase is, why have not you told us before how much Allah loves us? God. Folks, starting right in your own home and going out over the world, we must not only talk the truth, teach the truth, and make sure we are teaching the truth, but we must live the truth. Because they don't care what you know until they know how much you care. We could all write a biography of our lives of people that have affected us. I I've thought about doing that someday. Just write them every chapter, maybe I have 30 chapters, every chapter is someone who I met in the business world, who impacted my life. Almost, Dan, I'd say every single major decision I've made in my life, crossroad decision, has been affected by a person, a pastor, a lay person, someone else, that I've always held in high esteem and admired. God would use this step. Well, one man I never met is one of my heroes that I want to meet in heaven. His name is Paul Helms. And there might be some of you folks here that as old as I am know who he was. Paul Helms at 18 years old was a bakery boy. In other words, a janitor in a bakery. At 18, he got married. The two of them had come to Christ. They started to attend this little church after they got married. And one of the Sundays in the church, they had the faith promise presentation, where that you were promised before God, if he provides this, you will give it towards missions. So he filled out the faith promise. About a week and a half later, the pastor comes to his house, and uh, they talk a little bit, and he says, um, Paul, I, I don't think you understood what I was saying. He said, yes, I did. No, I, I don't think you understood what we meant by faith promise. He said, yes, I did. But Paul, you and your wife has promised far more than you even make. He says, yeah, I know. But you can't do that. He said, but God led me to do it. Well, what can you say as a pastor's hat? You know, forget God, listen to me. But anyway. <laughs> so the pastor didn't say much more. I lived in the home of his daughter, Peggy Helms Hastings, in Hollywood. 
while I was lecturing at UCLA for three months. I mean, it, I have to admit, I got spoiled. I had my own uh, person to take care of me every day, steak, lobster, uh, prime rib, every day. I got spoiled. And um, I got to know his daughter, Peggy, Peggy Helms Hastings. And Peggy one day was telling me about her father. For example, one time, every time they went to a party or anything else, he'd offer them $5 each time. Now, that would be like $50 today or 100 That everything they found wrong in social etiquette, they would get $5. He said, boy, did we learn social etiquette in eating everything because we wanted to make money. And another thing said, my father died of cancer. And before he died, quite a while before he died, he came from a baker boy to owning 80% of all baking capacity in America. One man. Some of you remember Helms Bread? Remember the Helms Sports Trophy? Which was like the Heisman today. It used to be the Helms Trophy given by Paul Helms for the greatest uh, uh, football athlete. And he owned 80% of all the baking capacity in America. And the United States then developed the antitrust laws. He was one of the first cases they were applied to. And they forced him to sell 51% of all his holdings in the bakery business. Well, he felt God told him to sell them all. So he sold everything for cash, not uh, uh, swapping for stock or anything else. Cash into the millions. A few months later, the stock market crashed. And everyone that bought his bakeries lost everything. He ended up sweet with millions, of which almost everything went to missions. When he died, his daughter said, he died of cancer. He had the days he'd get out and play golf a hole or two, and then he could go outside. Then he got to a point where he could go to the living room. Then he could sit up in bed. Then finally, my father was so weak, he couldn't sit up or get out of bed. So he asked me for a little Bible somebody had given him. It wasn't really a Bible. It just had a lot of verses in it. Only a little tiny thing. You see the little white ones like, you know, you open up. And said, he asked for a pencil. And he took seven words and he drew a margin around them. A line. Then she said, every day after that, he expanded that margin around those seven words. He said, when he died, he died with one hand in his chest, covering that little book with the scripture verses. She said, we took his hand off and we opened that book. The entire two pages had been blanked out except for seven words. Those seven words illustrated that he knew what life was all about. He knew he was living with one part of his heart in eternity. He knew why God created him and called him. Because of those seven words that were left in that page, they were wood, hay, stubble, silver, gold, precious stones. She said, my father knew what the value of life was all about. Earlier, the pastor, you made a statement, Dan, that all of us don't have the resources that Paul Helms had. But you have to understand, he made his first commitment. He had no resources. That's what speaks to me. 
It started with no. Folks, life is great. What a time in history to be alive with the technology and everything. With Wycliffe that's finally doing so many of the translations and all. What a time to make everything in our life count for eternity. This is why it's been a privilege for me to be here with these partners in mission on your mission week. Thank you so much. God bless.